Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. 2,000 years, not often get 2,000 year anniversary. I like that. 2,000 years ago this month, Germanicus died, one of the great soldiers of Julio Claudian Rome of the early empire, a man who took Roman arms back across the Rhine, revenged himself on the German tribes for their defeat of the legions in 9 AD under Varus. Anyway, you'll hear all about this when uh, you listen to the podcast. Yes, Germanicus died. It was dangerous business being a member of the Roman imperial family uh, in the uh, first century, as you'll hear. But was it accidental death? Was it disease? Or was it poison? You will find out all on this podcast. We've got Lindsay Powell. He's a friend of the podcast. He's been on before. And now he's on back on talking about Germanicus. You may know Germanicus from I, Claudius or from reading Suetonius, whichever one. But uh, he's one of the more he's one of the more celebrated and attractive figures from the historiography of the period. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the Victor Gregg podcast. If you haven't done so, please, I don't say this lightly, but it's one of the best pods I've ever done. A man on his 100th birthday telling us about his regrets, his impressions, his thoughts, his memories of the war, the lifelong trauma he suffered. It really is very special. So please go back in your time and listen to the Victor Gregg podcast, a remarkable man on a big on a big day for him, his 100th birthday. You can also go onto historyhit.tv where we got a couple of documentaries featuring Victor Gregg, actually. Uh, we got lots of things going on with History Hit TV. Use the code POD3, P-O-D-3, as always. That gets you a month for free. You can check it out for free. If you don't like it, you don't have to do anything about it. And then it charges you just one pound or dollar or euro per month for the first three months. It's really, really cheap. We've got a lot coming up. We've got Trafalgar coming up. We've got um, some amazing Second World War archaeology coming up. We've got all sorts, lots of Wars on the Roses stuff. So please do check out History at TV. We're trying to build the world's best digital history channel. I hope you enjoy that. In the meantime, though, here is Lindsay Powell talking about Germanicus. Lindsay, it is great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much, Dan. Great honour. Today we are talking about, well, we're talking about Roman Germany and Germanicus, big subjects. To start with, a lot of people are taught, a little bit like Hadrian's Wall in Scotland, well, the Romans never conquered Germany. Um, talk to me about, actually, from the point of view of the early first century AD, whether that's true or not. Well, looking at the evidence, and it's a combination of written and archaeological I think the first thing you've got to start with is the premise that the Romans didn't initially go across the Rhine with the intention of conquering it. Uh, that the, the initial uh, experience the Romans had with Germania, which actually is a term coined by effectively Julius Caesar, uh, it was a name to describe all the various peoples on the other side of the Rhine that really were too many to put a single name on. So he came up with the name Germania. Um, they were known as people who would raid south of the border. And, and, and if, if you like the response of the Romans was to put up with it for the longest time. And really, Julius Caesar is responding in 50, I think it's 55, 56, to an alliance that's an ally, rather, across the uh, the Rhine called the Ubii. It's a, it's a tribe that now lives around the, um, the the Cologne area, who actually were appealing for help. The the, the Swabi tribe were actually coming uh, down on, on on their backside, and they wanted they wanted help. So Julius Caesar goes through this famous episode where he builds a bridge across the Rhine, uh, not once but twice, and it's ostensibly to 
prove to the fact of the, the Swabia that they will stand by their allies. And really nothing much happens for about another 20, 30 years when Marcus Agrippa does the same thing. He responds to an appeal, guess who, uh, from the Ubi, who are a pro-Roman tribe. And in the event, the solution there is to actually bring the Ubi across the Rhine and settle them, resettle them uh, in the area we now call Cologne. Uh, so, in fact, the Romans have this interesting kind of diplomatic relationship with most of the people across the Rhine. And it's not really until about 17 BC where there's another one of these raids south of the Rhine uh, involving a, a, a number of tribes in a kind of like an ad hoc alliance who um, go a little bit too far, cause a little bit too much trouble in Roman Gaul. And the governor of Gaul, whose name is Marcus Lollius, um, finds this out by accident. Uh, leads a, uh, a counterinsurgency action against these people, is caught short, his legionary eagle is stolen, which is a big embarrassment, and after the news gets back to Augustus, Augustus makes the decision, we need to sort this out once and for all. So Lollius managed to get his eagle back, Augustus arrives in, 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 in Gaul and puts effectively a task force together. And in charge of this, he puts his stepson, a, a guy called uh, Nero Claudius Drusus, in charge of putting a plan together to actually uh, deal with the situation. It seems to be somewhat of a two-part plan, and there's an argument whether they were actually preconceived to be um, part of a big plan or they were sort of piecemeal. But the first thing they do is they conquer the central part of what are now the Swiss Alps, uh, the area they called Raitia, and it goes all the way through Noricum, which is basically uh, Western Austria. And having secured, if you like, the, the lower flank, they're then free to move on the, on the western side of this, which means they can then go across the Rhine. Nero Claudius Drusus comes up with a brilliant, it's a, it's a plan which, which typifies the kind of planning you see under Augustus. So rather than just driving over the Rhine like Julius Caesar would have done, they spend two years actually planning for it. So they build a fleet, they build a canal, uh, they build an army and they properly equip it. And the intention is to actually have a, a graded phased invasion. So in the first year, which in this case is uh, 12 BC, a fleet with troops actually sails up the canal, which actually takes us now into the Eiselmeer, uh, which in those days was called Lacus Flavor. Uh, they, they go across the, the north coast of, of, uh, of the Netherlands and then settle in the Ems River, go down the Ems River and actually tackle some tribes there. And they, on the way, actually form alliances. We're back to alliances uh, with now what we would consider to be Dutch populations. So they are, for example, the Cananifates is one of them. Uh, and the Batavi, which were already alliance partners, are, are involved in all of this. And there are a couple of other uh, peoples too. And then in each successive year through till 9 BC, they go in this sort of eastward uh, move. And it seems on the, pro on the whole to be fairly successful. There are some setbacks, but by and large, this, this phased approach seems to work. And in the process, what the Romans are doing is advancing forward across the Rhine. They're forming alliances with, with tribes across the, the Rhine. And then they're coming back to their winter camps, which are in the main uh, forts along the Rhine itself. So that's where we now get, for example, Mogontiacum, which is modern Mainz. You get, uh, for example, Cologne, which is, uh, Ubi, uh, I think it's um, Ara Ubriorum in, in Roman times. And it goes all the way up to Nijmegen, which is uh, Batavadurum. Uh, and in total, there are about five of these forts, which are the, the winter camps. The Romans actually w work on the basis of you make advance during the summer and then you come back to your winter camps. Uh, and then you can actually go back to your forward positions in the later years. What makes the campaigns of Drusus different is he, in fact, establishes a couple of forward positions uh, quite deep into Germany. Tragedy strikes in 9 BC when he dies. He, it's, it's not through a battle. It's nothing glorious. He falls off his horse uh, is the story. And apparently the horse falling on him breaks his leg. And from what I've done in, through my research about his life is that uh, leg injuries with horses can be actually fatal. Uh, and in his case, he died 30 
30 days later. Uh, what, what makes that episode particularly interesting is that his brother, who was actually down in a place called Ticinum, which is now Ticino with Augustus, awaiting reports from the front line, uh, receives this message that your brother is, is mortally wounded, you must come. So, and there's the story of how Tiberius and a Ritian uh, nobleman called Namantabagius, which is a wonderful name, ride all the way through the Alps, in, and they cover about 200 miles in a day, which is like the land speed record of the ancient world, which Pliny the Elder records, and I don't think has been improved. Uh, he gets to the camp, which the soldiers are calling the uh, the cursed camp, the uh, Castra Scalarata, uh, where he basically dies in his arms. It's that wonderful sort of dramatic, romantic uh, death. And the the post-mortem of that doesn't really prove what he died of other than presumably this this blood clot or so. The body is carried by the centurions all the way down to the winter camps and then is ceremoniously taken along the road all the way down back to Rome. Uh, what what make, makes it memorable for the people is that they turn out in droves along the roadside to actually see this this hearse with this military guard taking him all the way. And one of the Roman writers actually makes the point that in an act of piety, Tiberius is walking in front of the hearse every step of the way. This is supposed to be the wonderful example of a brotherly devotion. Well, I remember because Tiberius then becomes emperor and he's kind of an old, slightly baggy, lethargic emperor, isn't he? And, and he's encouraged by some people at the time. I remember when he becomes emperor, remember the dynamism of your youth. I mean, you were the guy who travelled 200 miles. Well, there's always the story, and I think Suetonius makes it, that there are two branches to the Claudian tree. Uh, and the sweet fruit was born by his brother called Nero Claudius Drusus, and the bitter fruit was Tiberius. Um, I, I take issue with you, by the way. I, I think actually Tiberius has had a really rotten press, and we'll talk about that under the context of Germanicus. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be writing a biography about him next year, so I'm actually going to be upturning and upending some some kind of uh, preconceived notions. He, he was a good soldier. I think that's the key to understanding him. Uh, he, he followed orders to the letter. Uh, he was a preparer, and I think... Uh, in his brother, it, it, there was maybe some sibling rivalry going on. That there's a suggestion that uh, there was a letter, presumably, that, uh, was revealed to Augustus, where where apparently in in, in, priv- in privacy, in, in in secret, he had written, had written to his brother Tiberius, "We need to get our stepfather to step down and bring back the res- Respublica. We need to bring the Republic back." And apparently, in this little scene, which was dramatized in uh, Robert Graves, I Claudius, you may remember it. So, in this scene, um, uh, Tiberius is reading the letter and he dissembles because of course he doesn't want to reveal and Livia in this scene says go on read the letter because she has an inkling of what it is and it's deeply embarrassing well it so ended up that, that, that Tiberius is the survivor and he is the guy who becomes the right hand man of Augustus in in the wake of the death of Agrippa in 12 so it's really all happening very close together and he becomes the guy who saves the day after the Roman reverse in 9 AD, which I suspect we're going to get to. Yes, and, and so what you actually then have is, is, is that the Romans are, in a sense, in a situation they have to avenge the disaster uh, that, that they, one, are faced in terms of the loss of their commander, but the job isn't finished. It's simple as that. And Augustus doesn't go into a flurry of panic because we're talking 9 BC at this point. It's, it's another so many years uh, before uh, Varus. But the long and the short of it is, is that over a series of years, Tiberius tries to finish the job and arguably does to a very significant extent. So by the time of 9 AD, which is, I think you've been driving to, is Varus inherits a, a piece of land which is like fist shape deep into what we now consider to be modern Germany, which includes now the Netherlands um, and all the way up basically to the Ems River going right along uh, arguably to the Elbe. Um, there, there seems to be some argument as to whether that includes that or not. Uh, but the Romans certainly had designs on it. They were supposed to be, because Drusus had actually got as far as the land just before, there was a monument 
to the Romans actually arriving. And in fact, if you look at Ptolemy, the geographer, there is actually map coordinates to this monument because they were, they were looking. That is the furthest reach of civilization. It's this little isolated place. Um, so the, under Tiberius, uh, there was a sort of pacification exercise, which is the typical way the Romans would do this. It's a combination of bringing in the local people and the aristocracy into the Roman system, building towns. And there's, there's amazingly now, there's actually been evidence found uh, in Germany of a trading post, an entrepot. Uh, which dates to around, I think it's uh, 4 BC, and they've done that because of the dendrochronology. They, they've actually dated the, the rings very precisely. Um, and what's extraordinary is that most archaeologists asked 50 years ago would, would have totally discounted this. They said that Cassius Dio, in talking about the Romans being uh, dispersed across Germania and in different communities doing different sorts of things, is now being appended. I mean, the evidence is beginning to come through. And it's amazing. If you follow the German news on a, on a fairly infrequent basis, they discover another fort. They discover another location. And um, it's happenstance is bringing this archaeological evidence to light. But what it, what it points to is that Augustus, having decided to pacify Germania, there was a consistent plan to do that. And then we get to Varus. Can I ask, uh, what was the caliber of opposition they met with in Germania. I mean, is this similar to the technological development, the engineering, the the military organization of the Gauls of the of the of the Britons, or is this uh, a tougher a tougher challenge than than those other uh, those other areas? Well, let's go back to what we have to deal with. So there's the archaeological evidence, which which give us the material finds of military weaponry and, and this sort of thing. And, but then from a, uh, a narrative description, we've really only got one source that, that, that is consistent, which is Tacitus, famously Germania. Um, and this is written around about uh, 80 AD, where a lot more is known about what happens in that part of the world than back in the day of Augustus, because eight decades have passed. But by and large, what, what seems to be the, the, the case is that there are differences between the nations that in, make up this, this population. Uh, some of them, interestingly, actually have Iron Age Celtic Roots. They're not actually Germans in the sense that we would think of them. Uh, the, the, the Romans kind of just lumped them together because this is what they tended to do. And, and part of, I think, their worldview was to impose an artificial order on things uh, by giving names. Right, So they can say, well, this is Germania and this is Gallia because it goes in three parts. But the, but the reality of it was is that the, the, the nations which were closer to the Rhine were probably more um, sophisticated in terms of their military uh, organization, in terms of their equipment. Uh, the Catii tribe, for example, particularly are, are described as actually having military tactics and organization very similar to the Roman legion. And um, th th this, this surprised the Romans in some respect because they think barbarians are naturally disorganized and, and, and uh, just people who can't think these things. But they met people who clearly could. And this is part of their, um, their weaknesses that they look at, at, at the tribe, for example, like the Kiruski, and they can't believe someone like an Arminius will ever be able to, to rise up and be someone who can be a challenger. And this sort of rather uh, supercilious thinking gets the Romans into trouble, not only in Germania, but other parts of the empire too. Um, so to answer your question, then, it, it really depends on where you are. So the Batavii, for example, on the uh, western side of now what we would call uh, the Netherlands, very, very sophisticated people and considered to be some of the best cavalry riders in the ancient world, uh, famous because they could ride through rivers. Uh, they, were, they, they had beautiful helmets and armor, which we've actually discovered in, in quite large quantities. And, and, and the further north and east you go, then the picture seems to become fuzzier. Uh, it seems to be partly that their skills in metalwork were somewhat different. Uh, they tended to have a soft iron rather than a hard iron, which which contained copper, uh, uh, carbon, which the uh, Greek and Roman uh, smiths had uh, pioneered and mastered. 
but but they seem to have actually mastered the art of guerrilla warfare. And you'll see this again, for example, in the Teutoburg disaster, where they, they play to their strengths, as you would expect them to do. So instead of deploying in an open field against a checkerboard from Roman army, they will use the cover of the forest and the, and the undergrowth, and they will attack spontaneously and do it very, very well. Well, let's come to that extraordinary event. Uh, you mentioned Varus. Tell me about him and tell me about the Teutoburg. Right. Uh, Varus um, actually uh, gets very bad press, very, very bad press, uh, and actually was a consul at one point with uh, Tiberius. I think it was like uh, when 7 BC, I think, was the, was the date. Um, he was, was a fairly archetypal Roman uh, patrician in the sense that he uh, went through the traditional uh, career path. Um, in fact, uh, he was on one of the early expeditions, a political expedition that Augustus had with his early family to the east, and he was appointed uh, to a political position, I think, in, in Greece. Um, by the time he gets to uh, Germany um, or Germania, in fact, he's looking after not only the newly conquered areas, the, the pacifying areas, but also the big rump of Gaul. So it's a fairly prestigious appointment this guy gets. Uh, and the the mission effectively is to pacify the region, which is an ongoing process, bring the people into the political system, get them using the coinage, get them following the law, to, to bring order to this this apparent uh, chaos. And the But the early sources that we have, which we mainly Cassius Dio uh, with some writings sort of peppered with things like uh, Suetonius, would imply that he was doing a reasonable job of this. Um, now, some of the negative sources will say that he was thoroughly incompetent, uh, and this is example by the fact he didn't lead the the the, the insurgency of Arminius terribly well and was duped by uh, by Arminius and uh, his his father, but father in law. But the but the truth of the matter is, I think once again the Romans when they when they decide that this guy is a bad guy, they tend to go to town on the story. Um, I, I think if you look at the way that Augustus. For example, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when, when Augustus receives the news and is actually sent the head of Varus by a Roman ally, we come back once again, Marabodos of the Marcomanni is, is, is an ally who signs a, tr- a treaty with, with Augustus and sticks to it. And when, uh, when Arminius goes to Marabodos and said, look, we're winning the revolt, join us, he says no, and he sends the head back to Augustus. And Augustus doesn't literally kick it. He literally buries it with honor in the family tomb of the Quinctilii. So you can see for the Romans, even though the press later becomes quite negative to that man as an incompetent, and they describe the that the battle that he was involved or battles that he was involved in as being um, someone who was was incompetent. In fact, Augustus didn't think that. Uh, and in fact, if you look through his career history, it was as ordinary as bland as any other military commander, and therefore wouldn't raise any eyebrows. Okay, were you given a bit of a spoiler there? But tell us what happens to him. <laughs> Well, um, the, the story goes that um, that he was ambushed by uh, a person that he trusted or was, was led to trust who was Arminius. Uh, we don't know that terribly much about Arminius. He, he appears to have been uh, a, a, an aristocrat within the uh, Kyrusky tribe, which was, a, which was a nation roughly in the, in the middle of northwestern Germany today. And the the subterfuge seems to have been that having served presumably in a, in a in a in a question capacity in possibly a cavalry regiment um, with the Romans potentially in, in in the Balkans had seen the way that Romans were treating pacified people and made the natural assumption that that would be how his people were going to be treated if the pacification process continued and saw the opportunity to gather together an alliance. Um, of other tribes to actually oust the Romans from his his native land, and in fact, by a series of military actions, which were mainly based around ambushes, was able to dupe Varus into following him into 
we seem to think is is forested country and was thoroughly utterly uh, annihilated in the process. Um, the story is that apparently sensing that there was uh, disaster on the on the horizon after three days asked his officers to uh, help him commit suicide, which, by the way, his father had done. So it was a family, family tradition by then. Um, and apparently that's what they do. He, he, he kills himself, his head is, is removed, and the officers try to uh, destroy the body so it won't be captured. But the head is found, and as I said earlier, is sent back. The, the, the way that the story is told uh, varies slightly between the different tellings in the Roman historians. Um, and, and some will, for example, create the impression that he was a complete fool. He was duped by, um, by Arminius and uh, his uh, other collaborators. Other people sort of said that he was just a very bad commander, and there are, there are descriptions of how he'd allowed in the marching columns civilians to mingle with the military uh, the orders, and that by definition meant a lax sort of military command. It's not really quite clear because once again we're faced with the issue of that the writers are typically writing many years later than the actual the story itself, the events taking place, and the um, that the bias of the writing trying to maybe tell another story. And in the case of Varus, he very quickly, as in the sense of, you remember I mentioned the name Lollius, well, there was the thing called the Clades Lolliana, which was the Lollian disaster back in 17, and this was the Clades Variana, which was the Varian disaster. So with, within Augustus's reign, the, the tragedy for him personally was that he had got two black marks in his reign. He had actually lost the eagles of, by then it would have been four or five legions, uh, the three under Varus and one potentially two under Lollius, which he then had to connive to get back. And this in the years after having got the Parthian eagles back from the, the Parthian Empire. So it was it was unfortunate from the, the, the optics point of view that men that he had appointed to do uh, military uh, governorships, if you were, actually in the process found men who were not up to the task. And whether they were up to the task or not is, is a matter for debate. So Varus has lost the three legions, uh, and it all this is also going. There's also a total collapse of Roman uh, control across Germania, right? So this is this is now a a proper crisis on Rome's northern frontier. Who who how how is it resolved? Well, interesting enough, you'd think that the Romans would, would rush to bring some sort of counterinsurgency, but they don't. They wait, and this is a very sort of Augustan uh, policy posture, which is to carefully assess and determine what's going to happen. So uh, rather than um, send a whole military expedition across the Rhine uh, under Tiberius, who is, as we've said earlier, the, the, the man who's very much the, 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 the fixer of, of military problems, um, they, they wait and they, they gather a, a, a force, I think it's uh, two years later, and they just go over the Rhine just to make the point that we can come and go as we please. On Augustus's birthday, they have uh, some races and so on and so forth, and they cross the, the Rhine back. And then the optics suggest that they just leave it alone. They don't go back really until 14. And the reason they go back to 14 again was not really planning, it was opportunism. And you may be familiar that uh, on the death of Augustus, the legions of the Rhine and the, the, uh, the Danube River revolted. They, were, they, they went in mutiny. And the man on the spot for Gaul and what was left of Germany was Germanicus Caesar. So he has, of course, as the commander chief for that region to go to quell the mutiny. And uh, when, when he deals with the situation, which turns out when you read the sources, mainly Tacitus, it's a, it's a paying conditions dispute. The men haven't been paid in ages. Uh, they have not been allowed to retire as their paperwork allows them to. They've been held on on extensions. And there's all sorts of descriptions which are as, as Germanicus arrives in the camp and the place is in complete disarray and people are they're missing teeth. You know, they're just complete disorder. The commanders have lost command. 
uh, and he tries to bring order. And we should say Germanicus is the nephew of Tiberius. He's the son of Drusus, who died when the horse fell on him. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and as a result of that, by the way, carries a lot of the cachet. So, so Drusus the Elder, as a lot of English readers will, will probably recognize him as, uh, is this young, gallant hero whose life was snatched away too early. But they look to his son to be the sort of the bearer of that same spirit. So Germanicus is, is successful in, in bringing a mutiny down. And one of the things he does is actually to, 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 uh, co, to, to bring the, the, the morale back, uh, drives a group of these troops across the Rhine, and they go and they just pick on a tribe and they go beat them up, effectively. Um, and if you like, it just shows that Germanicus Caesar and Romans, for political ends, will commit a genocide because it's convenient to do that. And at the end of 14, around about uh, September, they come back and these men are now, they've got the unit cohesion back together. And now they get serious about going back to Germany to deal with the guy Arminius, who is still alive at this point. So with the permission of Augustus and with help from Tiberius, Germanicus Caesar now... Uh, gathers an expeditionary force. You can almost re- imagine him reading through his father's notes to see how he do- did that. And in, in many ways mimics the same campaign. So they have a fleet which goes uh, partly up the west coast and deploys some troops ac- across the Ems. Other uh, troops come across the Rhine uh, through the forts uh, established by his father, as it turns out. And what they're trying to do is is pursue Arminius, capture him, kill him, but primarily capture um, and to effectively punish the recalcitrant natives and say, you've got to come back to us, we'll forgive, but you've got to come back. And to some extent, they're successful, but they don't succeed in capturing Arminius. Well, they succeed in capturing his wife, who's pregnant, and members of the family, which you can imagine is, which is kind of, as a second prize, is pretty good. That The problem is on the way back, they almost lose the entire army um, because they, they have this terrible debacle with the, uh, the Wadden Sea. Uh, the ships run aground and they have to have help from different tribes to actually get back. So the, the, the force that comes back is in, in rather poor state. And what's interesting is that Germanicus has such... Um, capital that he's won through all the things he's done in his life, that the local uh, citizens of Gaul have a sort of fundraiser event to actually to, to, to rebuild his army. So they come back with horses and all the things they need, and they are in a position then the following year, which is AD 16, to go after Arminius one more time. In AD 16, there are several battles, the two of which were famous. One is the Distaviso, and the other one, in fact, is the Battle of Angrarian Wall, where they come very close to capturing Arminius. They beat the Germans, but they still don't capture Arminius. And at the end of all of this, uh, and again, another rather pseudo-catastrophic return to Germany, uh, he appeals to Tiberius, I just need a troop surge. Just give me one more year and some more troops. And Tiberius says, no. What's very telling about that is I think it's a man that's um, reflecting on his experience. He's been to Germany, goodness knows how many times he lost his, his brother there. Uh, he sees the reality for what it is. It's not worth the effort. And the, the net result of all of that is there's there's a toing and froing on the correspondence and Germanicus asks once again and Tiberius holds to his position and says, you will come back and you'll be consul and I've got other plans for you. Uh, and that's what happens. So at that point, basically, the Romans draw a line and the, the frontier is established at the Rhine with these alliance tribes north of it. And the, the Romans can never quite resist going over the Rhine just to have one more go. And you see this under Mission, you see it under even Caligula has a go, um, uh, who is actually interestingly Germanicus's son. And that's that's political failure as well as uh, as a military failure. The, um, the the Roman army is even going into the third century up, up into Germany because it has this allure that, that Romans continue to 
want to, 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 to bring it back. It's a, there aren't many places you can fight a war if you're an emperor by this age. It has to be either Parthia, which is basically uh, asking for trouble, and people do try it. There's nothing really south of the Sahara that they can go after. Uh, Egypt's already been a province since 1331, so uh, Germany is written, and Britain, of course, is taken by Claudius. So, so they keep going back across the Rhine, hoping to find something called glory. And why is, is Germany just a big place full of forests and rivers, and it's just a it's just a tricky geographical prospect? Or what, what was there something? What what was so uh, tough about Germany to bring under the Roman yoke? Well, people actually spend a lot of time doing PhDs and things like this. But but my summary of, of the position would be um, that, that there was a certain minimum amount of cohesion amongst the tribal structures that you needed in order to impose this kind of Roman political and military model. Uh, and it worked in places like, for example, Gaul very well because there was a stratified structure to their society and you could bring in the aristocracy and they could they could be wound into this Roman system and they could provide troops. It didn't seem to work very well the, the further north and east you went with, with uh, the so-called Germanic tribes. Um, interesting enough, the ones which you, you could argue... It, what what happened was it, it happened in the reverse. So as as the centuries go by, it's the Roman Empire which has the allure for the Germanic people. And even though the Romans don't want them, the Germans will come to them. So this is this older different story altogether. But 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 the if you like the the, the Roman attempts at uh, conquest fail partly as you've said is geography there that there are forests clearly and there is descriptions I think in Strabo. Um, where it, it, I think there's one called Hercynia Silva, which is really, really dense. Um, and, and, and you almost feel that, that when, when you read this, that uh, it's in the, in the way that sort of 17th century maps had uh, you know, an uncharted territory. The Romans felt that way. This, this was really strange and very far away. And uh, one of the, I think, achievements of Drusus was to actually go quite far into these forests, like it was like going to the moon, effectively. Uh, there were people who had eyes in their head, chests, and this sort of strange description. Uh, but but we're talking about people trying to deal with the unknown and they come back with all sorts of mm. ideas. Uh, a lot of the information that they're getting, of course, is just through people who've gone there, merchants and other people that they bring in as captured slaves. And the Romans are trading with the German tribes to get German slaves. And what's very interesting how in uh, Carnuntum, for example, in Austria, a recent work by uh, archaeologists using uh, geological uh, um, survey work, um, have discovered the presence of a gladiator school with, with an amphitheater there. And the evidence points to German prisoners or, or traded slaves being trained at that school for distribution elsewhere. So the Germans like things about the Germans. They have this allure of being uh, tough, very exotic, uh, wild-looking people. And it's telling, isn't it, that uh, Augustus actually has as his personal bodyguard not other Romans, but he actually has Germans as his bodyguard, who are probably Batavians or Ubii people, because they probably look very formidable. They speak a really strange language, and they're very obedient because they know who pays their money. Um, and you can never quite trust a Roman if you pay them money because someone might pay them slightly more and they'll, they'll, they'll stab you in the back, literally. So I, I think when you, when you look at this area that we consider Germany, uh, it, it's, it's like it is today. I mean, it's hilly in parts and it's, uh, it's, it's lowlands and others. Um, from a military point of view, um, that the Romans tried to deploy their fortresses so that they had access points. So, for example, from the Rhine, it would then go uh, across the, the, to another river on the other side so they could try and journey upwards. Um, and, and it seemed to have actually worked to some point, but they just literally pointed it and, and decided it wasn't worth the effort after a while. And I said the, the irony of it is is that in doing that, they created this 
um, vision, I think, in the people across the Rhine that there was something really worth having south of it. So they made a play, and that, that ultimately was a big story later in the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, we should just finish the story, because you've written the biography of Germanicus. Yeah. He comes to a sticky end, doesn't he? Well, uh, he does. He dies. Uh, so that's, I'm sorry, the big story. Um, my, uh, my, my Was it poison? Um, uh, well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, once again, just like we've talked the evidence I've read, it, it comes down to, 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 to a number of things. You've got Josephus writes a source, which um, in around about AD 90 is writing his great big book on Jewish antiquities, uh, which is his attempt to try and position for a, a Latin a Roman audience the history of the Jews and, and why the Jews required and, and merited study and were an important people. And in the sort of telling of the story, he mentions that uh, in Antioch, um, during the uh, funeral ceremony, they they actually find that he he um, has been poisoned because uh, that's the accepted view at that time. So that's one of the early sources. Uh, Suetonius and Tacitus talk about there being blue blotches on his skin uh, and actually a long lingering sickness. And if you look at that, that's and, and foaming of the mouth is the other one. So there are three things: a long sickness, blue blotches, and foaming of the mouth. And and that's what you've got to deal with to try and deduce whether it's poisoning. Um, Josephus says it was poisoning. That was the, con- the conventional belief, uh, belief at the time. And what's what's telling is the fact that if you read the word, and it, it comes down to Latin words in the end, uh, Suetonius and and uh, Tacitus particularly use a word which um, really is vague enough that it, it infers that it's not poisoning with a with a bad intention. It could even be a medication, a drug, right? And and this is where I come to the conclusion. Um, it, it's quite possible, and this is what I argue, having assessed the kinds of poisons that could have been used, who might have been the kind of people behind a conspiracy, if indeed there was one, um, and the kind of state of medicine at the time. I think the preponderance of evidence points to the fact that uh, he had picked up some kind of illness when he was travelling in Egypt. Uh, and by the time he got back to uh, Antioch, this thing had developed. His personal physician is in Syria now working with locally sourced herbs, whatever they're using, because most of the, uh, the, the drugs and medications are going to be plant-based. And they're of a different strength or variety than you get in Italy. So now you've got a physician working with slightly different uh, ingredients for, for his medicines. And in the telling that we get from Tacitus, there is the suggestion that over several days, maybe as long as a month, possibly just only two weeks, he, he, he gets very sick, he seems to recover, and then he then falls sick and then dies on his bed. But all this while he's not delirious, he's actually aware he just seems to get weaker and weaker. Um, and while you could argue that that was poison, I think it's rather more a case that it's the medication he's getting is in fact itself poisoning him, and the doctor doesn't know this. So uh, you could argue at the end he may have been poisoned, but it was not in a conspiratorial manner. And I think the, the the fascination is, and I've just written a paper for uh, Ancient History magazine on exactly this point, if you then follow the context of what's happening, uh, and if you're after a really good story, uh, you, you, you can take what, what the context is and, and really go to town with this whole idea of, of it being a poisoning. And of course, it, there were probably no post-mortems in the sense that we'd have with the sort of forensic aspect. They would look at the body and say, yep, there's blue spots on it. Well, apparently this, this is called cyanosis. This is literally the starving of blood to the extremities of the body, and it literally does go blue. But there's all sorts of causes for cyanosis, and some of them could be quite natural. Um, and I list those in my book because uh, it's important, I think, for people to know that, uh, again, like with the foaming of the mouth, a lot of people, when they die naturally, foam at the mouth. The esophagus expels uh, acid and so forth from the, from the stomach. And again, that's not indication of, of poisoning. 
And the one thing that Suetonius points to when they cremate the body, that the heart is still in perfect condition, this is conclusive proof that there's poisoning, is arrant nonsense to a modern person. I mean, there's no explanation for that at all. But it served the purpose in ancient days because uh, there were a group of people who were looking at uh, the local governor, whose name was Calpurnius Piso, as, as being someone who had an axe to grind. Against who? Tiberius. So we come back to Tiberius. And through the telling and iterations of this story, it becomes more and more and more that Tiberius is behind the so-called mysterious death of Germanicus. And I don't believe a word of it. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Robert Graves. Eat that. Um, you're, you've got lots of books and things out at the moment. Let's tell me a few of them. you got... Uh... Well, I actually got two. Um, the, the first book I wrote was uh, Germanicus, which was really the life story, and I've called it Germanicus, the Magnificent Life and Mysterious Death of Rome's Most Popular General, where I try to actually tell the story not only of Germanicus as an individual, but why his reputation enjoyed a, a rebirth, if you like, during the Enlightenment age and has so totally disappeared in the 20th century, and that's happened to a lot of famous Romans. Uh, and the other book, I had the opportunity with Osprey to write uh, about uh, Roman soldier versus Germanic warrior, where I go into some depth. We had a conversation about Romans in Germany. Um, and actually, why is it the Romans had such a hard time beating Germanic warriors when they clearly were, if you like, equipped, not as well, and the discipline was different, but the Germans gave a real run for their money. So there were two books I wrote, and I thought they were fun to do. Lindsay, just come on, in a sentence, tell me why the Germans gave them... why. In a sentence, tell me why you think the Germans gave them a more of a run for the money than certain other certain other tribes people they fought. Uh, greater use of the uh, terrain, they had developed a, a fighting style combat doctrine which enabled them to, to use that. If I can draw the analogy, it's Afghanistan versus every Western power, Russia or the Britain, America. We cannot win wars in Afghanistan for the same reasons that Rome's could not win them in Germany. And they got in Germany, you got to treat at depth as well, right? You can yes. retreat and then turn around and strike. Yeah, and, and the Germans use this great that's great uh, the value to them. And uh, I, I think the other thing is the, uh, the the way that they can recoup their losses. There, there, there are ultimately many more Germans than that there can be Romans, although the Romans have a track record of recouping. But um, it, the, they, they have a way of fighting which the Romans can never quite uh, overcome. And in fact, it's not just the Germans. In fact, if you look at the history of Spain in the second century BC uh, and other parts of the Roman world, they, they faced the same problem. The Romans, in a sense, uh, by the time of Augustus, had, had, had perfected a particular battle uh, form that, that, that worked very well against another army of the similar kind. Uh, but it, it didn't work in areas where somebody came up with asymmetric alternatives. And what's very interesting is that Romans have more and more to actually use the auxiliaries to fight the wars because the auxiliaries are themselves recruited from the same people they're often fighting. Well, Spain in the second century, Caledonia was no picnic for the Romans. Every time they uh, marched north into, into what is now Scotland, it was a pretty tough time. Oh, absolutely. And what's very interesting is that they were German auxiliaries actually fighting there. The Sugambri, who were, to go back to Marcus Lollius all those times, uh, one of the tri tribes that caused problems for the Romans, actually by now, in, in the time of Agricola up in Mount Scrapius, are actually a, a long-standing auxiliary troop, and they fight very well on the side of the Romans. In fact, I was reading about Mons Gropius the other day, the famous battle that uh, Tastus recounts that Agricola fought up in the Highlands of Scotland, and in fact, the Ro Roman legionaries did no fighting called Tastus. It was all Batavian and Germanic auxiliaries that did all the fighting at that battle. Remarkable. Um, well, you say remarkable, but that's kind of the way they designed it. And I could take you back to the Battle of uh, Edistaviso, for example, uh, with Germanicus in, in, in uh, 16 AD, where that's exactly what happened too. And if you read the story, it's quite quite fascinating, where the, the legions are deployed in two rows. There's four legions. It's, it's, it's a massive army. 
uh, on the one side, and another four behind them. So you've got eight legions in this battle. It's an enormous numbers. And all in the front ranks and sides are auxiliaries, archers and slingers mainly. And the battle initially starts with them. And the, the Germans come down the hill and attack them. And at a certain point, these archers run out of ammo. And then other auxiliaries have to come and rescue them. It's only when that battle's happening do the legions march forward. I think the Romans looked at it this way. It's pragmatics all the way, which is they had got a variety of different uh, fighting skills and you don't need to employ the heavy hardware if you don't need to. Keep your powder dry and let the other ones fight it for you. And as it turns out, the we tend to think of auxiliaries as being somewhat a second-rate poor force. I think that's a misunderstanding. And in fact, we, we need to think of them more as a, a, a non-citizen professional army, sometimes fighting under their tribal chieftains as a sort of uh, uh, an irregular army. And uh, that's part of the treaty that they negotiate with the Romans. So I would imagine that the the the, the battles that we've been describing in the uh, in the German context, a lot of those were Romans fighting alongside these tribal chieftains using Germanic cavalry, which was apparently pretty good. The Germanic infantry was also highly regarded. But the fact is, is that you would bring these different forces in. And what I was saying that the way that the Romans had actually got this battle doctrine, which which tended to be a bit stiff sometimes by using these very flexible professional. Uh, non-Roman units, you could achieve far more. And I think that's the brilliance. And over time, and certainly under Augustus, the numbers of those units mushroom to the point where they almost equal the numbers of the legionaries. And I think if the Romans are stuck to this idea, only Roman citizens can fight battles, there would not have been a Roman Empire in the way that we understand. It would have been much more a small affair. But it was part of this international diplomacy and political game that, that Augustus really kind of pioneered by involving pacified peoples in in the military affairs and they would they would gain money and prestige and, and sometimes citizenship out of that but it also diffused those as potential rebels in their own country by taking them out rotating them into another geography um and and we'll come back one day and talk about Barkoffa, which is my other favorite subject um and what you have there is a classic case is that you bring into another in, in uh, the jewish revolt in what is now israel palestine that's correct yes in the west bank particularly uh in in the 132 to 36 uh, period it is the fact that when you see the kinds of troops being deployed to fight there i mean they they're from every part of the roman empire and 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 that's uh i think part of the genius here is that we misunderstand that the auxiliaries are not second-rate troops. They, they really are outstanding troops. And the fact is those are the people, for example, manning Hadrian's Wall and Antonine Wall. Right? So they were trusted enough both in terms of their loyalty but also the fact of their uh, military prowess to be able to be given that role. And significantly, going back to Germanicus for a second, during the mutiny, what, what's what, there's a little, little nugget of a story where um, the Roman legionaries who are Roman citizens have basically disgraced themselves so much that Germanicus actually arranges for a local unit of auxiliaries to take his family members to safety. And this is a turning point, actually, in the narrative of the mutiny because uh, he goes on and uh, stands up and says, I am now going to give my, my wife and my son, Caius, known as Caligula, to the care of these of these uh, loyal auxiliaries, and they will take him to the nearest city and they will be looked after. And the Roman soldiers begin to realize they have become that much the enemy that their favorite little Caius Caligula is going to go with the care of the... And that breaks was one of the effects of breaking the mutiny. Because the Roman um, uh, prestige, if you like, at this point is taking a ding. And they say, no, 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 you don't need to go that far. You know, you, 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 that's okay, we'll, we'll come to an arrangement. So uh, it is quite fascinating that there was this um, two-level, if you like, that, that the auxiliaries were, were part of, but yet separate from the Roman army. Lindsay, I feel that you've answered many questions that I've had about Rome 
and Germany uh, for, for decades. So thank you very much, dude. Good luck with these books and see you next time on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm not going to be a part of the history of our country.